0: Today, we have Bradley Campbell on the podcast. Dr. Campbell is a sociologist interested in moral conflict, clashes of right and wrong and how they are handled. Most of his work examines genocide, which normally arises from large-scale interethnic conflicts. Recently, he has also begun to examine the much smaller-scale conflicts on modern college campuses. His latest book, co-authored with Jason Manning, is called The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars. Thanks for chatting with me today, Bradley.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Well, we got lots lots to discuss, and this is a topic that we haven't fully represented on the Psychology Podcast yet. So I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about some of these issues that are very front and center in the cultural wars today. Would you say they're more front and center today than in past generations, some of the things you write about?
2: Yes, I'd say this is most of the stuff we're talking about is something that's fairly new, or at least a new form of it.
0: Okay. Well, let's start with your, just briefly, your work on genocide, because you've studied the sociology of genocide. That's how you started off in your career. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little about, I know that's a wide range of things you've studied, but maybe uh, some of the essential points you've tried to make. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. So the genocide work ties into my work on conflict college campuses in that it's both about moral conflict. So that's kind of the broader subject matter that I've studied in all my work. So moral conflict or clashes of right and wrong, which is something, it's, it's really broad in that we would think of a moral conflict as occurring anytime somebody has a grievance against someone else. So, and this would just be, so anytime in sociological terminology it would be anytime somebody defines somebody's behavior as deviant, right? So anytime you have a grievance or, or see, disapprove of someone's behavior, there's a conflict and then the idea was, well, how do people handle conflicts? And so then that is there's a huge range of behavior there too, handling of conflict. This could be scowling at somebody on the bus who's talking on their cell phone too loud. It could be avoiding somebody who's been annoying you lately, a friend, you know, uh, not talking to them as much, not hanging out with them as much. It could be quitting a job where the supervisor is giving you problems. It could be firing an employee. Or it could be an act of violence, like most violence, whether it's homicide, usually arising out of arguments, or assaults, most of them come from conflict or a way of handling conflict. And that includes large-scale violence like genocide. So I had drawn from the work of Donald Black, who's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, and he has for a long time studied the handling of conflict, initially looking at law, whether people turn to law to handle their conflicts. Like, what do they call the police? Do they sue someone? And then what happens? Do the police make an arrest? Is the person convicted of a crime? Or does somebody win their lawsuit? So this was the kind of thing that a Black had looked at as he started looking at law and then expanded it to look at other ways of handling conflict. So I approached genocide initially from that perspective, thinking like, and the idea was that one way of explaining handling of conflict is with the social structure. So the social characteristics and relationships of the people involved, are they high and low, high or low in status, or are they relationally close, like are they friends, or, or are they distant, like they're strangers? So, you know, for example, if you're assaulted by a stranger, you're more likely to call the police than if you're assaulted by a friend, or if you're raped by a stranger, you're more likely to report it than if you're raped by a friend. So these kinds of relationships, whether people are are, uh, relationally close, whether they're high or low in status compared to someone else, matter for how conflict gets handled. And so that was the approach that Donald Black had used. And I initially applied that to genocide in my um, dissertation work and then my first book called uh, The Geometry of Genocide, which is with University of Virginia Press. And so they're looking at these large scale ethnic conflicts. Like, so when people have grievances against an ethnic group, you know, do they handle them with genocide? And how much genocide do we see? So genocide there is is just ethnically-based mass killing. Ethnically-based mass killing could occur on a, a small scale. So it could be, you know, people massacring Indians in California in the 1850s, so, you know, so there would be a theft of rancher's cattle, and then the ranchers would get together and go Slaughter some Indians. And it might be that like they kill 10 or 20 or 30 Indians uh, in an expedition, but then that would be a that would be genocide. It's ethnically based mass killing, a low-level genocide, on up to something like the Holocaust, where you have this very systematic program of extermination resulting in the killing of, of six million Jews across Europe. Degrees of it, but I, I looked at it as as ethnically based mass killing and trying to understand um the, the things that were associated with that. So I think um you know, without, you know, getting into every aspect of the argument, um, I looked, I was looking at genocide as a result of a certain kind of social structure. So where social distances between groups are high, where there's a lot of inequality, it occurs It's at its extreme when there are very powerful ethnic groups who have grievances against less powerful and distant ethnic groups. But this framework can, look, can explain a lot of kind of interesting things that we see in genocide. I, I wrote an article on uh, contradictory behavior in genocide, for instance. So, uh, other people had, had begun noting too that the idea of people simply as rescuers or killers in genocide didn't account for people who took on multiple roles. So, there had been a lot of work, like on rescuers during genocide what makes people, you know, be altruistic? What leads them to sacrifice their lives for others to rescue if they're a member of the perpetrator group, saving the lives of members of the victim group? And, you know, there was a book called The Altruistic Personality, right? So a lot of uh, by uh, Samuel Ohler and Pearl Ohler. And this was a really psychological approach looking at how, how personality factors lead to these things. And it's not that these kinds of explanations are wrong, but they don't account for all the variation that you see. So, People may people who are rescuers who rescue some members of the group may also act as killers. So you have this extremely different behavior. And rather than say like, well, there's this group of killers who have this personality and this group of rescuers who have this, sometimes they're do it, it's the same people doing both. We saw that a lot in the um, the Rwandan genocide, for instance, where you might have somebody like one man was hiding four Tutsis in his home. To the Tutsis were the the target group in the Rwandan genocide, and this was a, a Hutu man from the perpetrator group, hiding four Tutsis in his home. And then another Tutsi man stopped his home to ask for directions, and he promptly turned them over to the mobs of killers. So he's Mm. helped kill this one man while helping rescue others. So you have these cases where people are acting both as perpetrators and rescuers. And, you know, usually it's that, that kind of pattern. They're hiding their friends, they're saving their people who are close to them, and targeting and, and participating in the killing of those who are more distant. You even see like high-level perpetrators, like one of the architects of the Rwandan genocide who had a Tutsi mother. The Rwandan genocide is a little peculiar because ethnicity passed through the male line, so you could have a Tutsi mother and a Hutu father and you'd be a Hutu. And so he's, the Tutsis were targeted and he took yeah, you know, the the movie Hotel Rwanda was about Paul Rusesabagina, who who uh, saved a lot of uh, Tutsis in a hotel. But this man, this perpetrator, took his mother to Paul Rusesabagina and, and at this hotel where he's rescuing people, and said, "Paul, I give you my cockroach, which was their slur for Tutsis. You know, in bringing her here, he's orchestrating a genocide against Tutsis. So you see this kind of behavior." And it fits that kind of pattern where, where people are rescuing those who are close and, and killing those who are distant. So, those are some of the things that I addressed with my initial work on genocide. And this can apply, of course, to other, other forms of violence, can, can be looked at in the same way, too.
0: Totally. I thank you for going through that because it made it even clear, after even after reading your book, it made it very clear to me this link between these two programs of yours. Now, this is exciting for me as a psychologist to talk to a sociologist because we don't talk to each other that often, these different fields, and I think that's unfortunate. So this interesting interplay between personality and motivation and then environmental, large scale societal influences, you know, all these things are interacting in, in lots of ways. You know, even with the instances, the examples you, you told me of the these individuals show these contradictions, you know, there probably still was some, not a fully explainable, but some set of personality characteristics that helped increase the likelihood that they would even show those contradictions. So let's talk about the campus culture in this, what you call, well, not the, I shouldn't call it the campus culture, I call it the victimhood culture, because not all campuses are 100% victimhood culture, right? But you're saying this is a growing sort of culture on campuses. Can you first define what that culture is and then Just how prevalent is this in this day and age?
2: Okay, so what the culture is, first of all, in this extreme form on campuses, but not, of course, among everybody on campus, it's the far-left activist, and it's especially something that we've seen more of in recent years, like in the past 10 years even, um, less than that, some of um, uh, the ideas becoming more prevalent. So we talk about things like the idea of microaggression and trigger warnings and safe spaces. And this has all come to public attention in the past few years. And these are manifestations of what we're calling victimhood culture. And we call it that in contrast with two other kinds of moral cultures that we talk about, honor culture and dignity culture. And so those aren't our terms. Other sociologists and historians have talked about honor cultures and contrasted them with dignity cultures that replaced them. But the idea would be that, so just like, you know, you might have manifestations of a victimhood culture, you have particular manifestations of, say, like an honor culture. One kind of, one way of handling conflict in some honor cultures is the duel, And this is a, a particularly kind of, it's an example that really kind of shows the logic of the culture. So you might have um, in the um, in the American South before the Civil War, or even in the in the North earlier on, so you might have a high status man who has been offended by another high status man, he slurred his character somehow, and so the
0: Alexander I, Hamilton,
2: so well, well, the yeah. Hamilton Burr duels yeah. is an example of that, right? That's and that was uh 1804, so that, at that time they were these things were still happening in the North in the United States. Um, so in that case, Burr thinks that Hamilton has been slurring his character repeatedly. He's probably right about that. And so he finally challenges him to a duel where he first asks him to disavow statements that he's made and that kind of thing. When Hamilton won't, it ends up challenging him, him to a duel. And so they then go and fire pistols at each other. Hamilton ends up dead. And so it's something that seems kind of bizarre to modern people. I think like, how was that going to solve anything so right. you've been offended by somebody, so let's go fire guns at each other, and then that'll i mean uh Burr could have died, nobody could have died what how does it mm-hmm. how does it uh, address the problem but in an honor culture, it's very um one's reputation in the eyes of others is important, and one of the things that's especially important is your reputation for bravery physical bravery, and so mm-hmm. by subjecting yourself to uh you know, demonstrate not only that you're willing to engage in violence, but that you're willing to risk death, you demonstrate that you belong in that kind of social status, right? Mm -hmm. That you have have honor, physical bravery, and the other things that are associated with it. So this is kind of, you know, not all honor cultures fight duels, but often other kinds of violence. So you might see in the 1800s, um, in Greece, there were these knife fights where a man who who had been slurred, maybe another man, in, in one case, a, a man walks into a bar and tells another man that he's a fool and a braggart. The man responds, I'd rather be a, a fool and a braggart than the lord of a house full of magdalens or, or prostitutes. Oh, right? so, he's, so then they draw their knives out. Those are out. fighting words. Yeah, so it's fighting words, right? So then they draw their knives out, and one man slashes the other's cheek, and it's over. And that's a type of duel as well, right? It's it's kind of an on-the-spot act of violence agreed upon by both parties. But you have also feuding in tribal societies where clans might exchange killings back and forth, or even modern gang war. In honor cultures, the idea is that you don't let yourself be insulted or taken advantage of, that you respond to violence with violence, or you protect your life and property, but you also might be uh, required to respond to certain kinds of insults with violence if you're going to maintain your honor. So aggression in response to insult is not only acceptable but it might be necessary to keep your social standing in honor cultures also people end up so people end up being very touchy, sensitive to slight so that they are quick to perceive insults, they don't want to look like a coward, like they have no honor if they are letting things go that are serious insults and then they might also be quick to insult others, like the two men in Greece going, in, you know, walking, one man walking in a bar and insulting the other, that also kind of demonstrates that you're not afraid. And so there are certain characteristics in even, you know, despite a lot of differences in honor cultures, but there is aggression in response to certain kind of insults, touchiness or or high sensitivity to certain kinds of slight. Willingness to insult other people, and 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 you know the idea is that you handle conflicts yourselves. You don't go to the law or to third parties. Right. And the culture that replaced honor has been called dignity culture by historians and, and and sociologists. And the idea here was that instead of being based on a kind of status, which in honor cultures is is honor or you know physical bravery, the idea is that every human being has this inherent worth or or dignity. So dignity is the idea. Everybody has value. And because you have this inherent worth as a human being, the idea is you don't need to, to care what others say about you. So, you might, in, in dignity cultures, parents might tell their children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And the idea is it doesn't matter what the words people say, just ignore them, right? And so, mm-hmm. the idea is you shouldn't be sensitive to slight, instead, be, be thick skinned um, and don't respond with violence. If somebody is violent to you toward you, then you go to the law or you go to authorities, but uh, you don't need to even handle that yourself. And so you have an opposite kind of moral approach along several kind of dimensions. In dignity cultures, don't be sensitive to slight. Go to third parties if there are serious offenses. Let minor things and ver- merely verbal things go. So this is um, partly because I had, and Jason Manning, my co-author of the new book, both of us had been studying moral conflict a lot and violence. The literature on violence, there's a lot about honor and dignity, you know, because honor cultures tend to tend to lead to uh, a great deal of violence. What we started noticing on college campuses were these situations where students were highly sensitive to insult. And so this reminded us of, of honor cultures, you know, initially thinking, well, that's not culture of dignity, but also they were portraying themselves as victims and advertising their weakness and their need for help. They were appealing to third parties. So then, there it was very different from an honor culture because the idea was, you know, in honor culture, you want to, you're you strong and you can handle your, your conflicts. Right. And in this kind of new culture that we were seeing emerging, people were saying that they were in need of protection. So we saw things. We were interested in um, the idea of microaggression, for instance. So This was a term I hadn't heard until 2013. It's been around a while, but almost nobody had heard of it before about then or or even later. But um, I was paying attention to some stuff that was happening at Oberlin College, partly because I had had an interest in hate crime hoaxes for a long time. These situations where people might fake a hate crime, a lot of times it was on a campus. Mm -hmm. And... uh, there was usually then a big response. People were quick to believe it had happened. Mm-hmm. And I was, and then kind of to forget that this was even a thing, that there was a hate, you know, that, that it could be hoaxes the next time one would happen. So this thing was sociologically interesting to me for a long time. So I was kind of following some stuff on uh, at Oberlin. There was some graffiti and uh, with offensive things and, and stuff that looked like it might be a hoax. It did later turn out that these were, it's not really clear exactly why they were doing, but it was, they were liberal students who were trying to get a rise out of people or something. Mm-hmm. But at the time, there was a big uproar at Oberlin. And during that time, somebody spotted what they thought was a Ku Klux Klansman on campus. And it turned out to be a woman wrapped in a, a towel, I think. But I, talking to Jason Manning, my, my co-author, who ended up being my co-author on this stuff? We were just kind of amazed. Like at Oberlin College, which is known as as a pretty leftist environment, people thought that there was a like a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan or what, <laughs> and and they shut down classes and stuff because of this. And it turned out not to be true. But during this time, I was you know watching all this. We also then heard of what was um, called uh, Oberlin microaggressions. It was a website, Oberlin microaggressions, where people would post microaggressions that had happened to them. So the idea was that there were these microaggressions, little small offenses, verbal slights and things. They were called aggressions because they saw them as harmful to them. They're micro because they're small, but the idea was that they add up over time and do damage to people. And so students were posting things there like one student overheard a professor at the gym I think saying, "Oh, I I'm glad my husband And I both have blue eyes, so our child will have blue eyes. And the student said, you know, saw this as offensive and said, I don't want casual racism in my professors. Or, you know, and and these were the kinds of complaints people were making. Mm -hmm. And so we're just fascinated by this thinking, you know, what was exactly was going on here that in this environment that was not even, you know, it was not a conservative kind of environment. This was Oberlin College. You would think this is more like an anti-racist environment, but people, first of all, thought that there were serious acts of racism like Klansmen walking around. Second, that, or, or serious organized racism. Like, And then second, that there were concerned about these minor offenses. Now, it seems sociologically interesting to us because it seems very plausible that people are concerned more about minor offenses when there are last major ones, right? right. So uh, in the same environment where people are most concerned about racism and see it as bad, they're more likely to find smaller acts of racism and they begin to interpret even tinier and tinier things as as acts of racism. And so, so we began to be interested in this, but what we saw there is like, you have people who are sensitive to slight to the extent that they're even pointing out and listing microaggressions, so that's like an honor culture. It's a different kind of slight, but high sensitivity to slight. But they're not handling with them with violence. They're complaining about them publicly. And as we see, like in a lot of other cases, appealing to university administrators to do something about it. And so it was combining elements of, of honor and dignity culture diverging from both. And we ended up calling it a culture of victimhood. So victimhood culture. And because victimhood... Becomes a kind of moral status in this culture, just like honor is a kind of moral status in an honor culture. It's honor, or you know, physical bravery, a reputation for physical bravery it's important. Being seen as a victim accords one one a kind of status in, in these victim cultures. You get um, partisanship, people taking your side, and especially in um, among activist circles on college campuses, this being labeled a victim. Was giving status. And for this reason, then, like the opposite of victimhood becomes stigmatized, just like cowardice is stigmatized in honor culture. Privilege is bad in a victimhood culture. And so, um, you know, if you have privilege, then you at least need to acknowledge it. Uh, Being blind to your privilege is very bad. And also it makes sense that if victimhood becomes a status, that some people will falsely claim victimhood, as we we see in hate crime hoaxes and other things like this. And they're quick to perceive it. We also see this not as it's, even though this culture is at its extreme on college campuses and in certain environments among them, um, it's also something that, in certain ways, spreads elsewhere. So you see, um, even um, you know, certain aspects of victimhood being adopted by the right, by even by people who oppose the culture, and you know, something that some psychologists have called competitive victimhood, where in moral arguments people come to uh, to arguments become who's who's the uh, biggest victim? Yes, the yeah. biggest. Well, you know,
0: that's really neat. important that you identify this trend and uh, try to understand this trend is important as well. If I stand back as far as possible and look at this as objectively as possible from many different perspectives, I think that we probably can, there's another book there that we can identify called the anti-PC culture. You know, there's another culture that's cropping up on the far, not even the, I would just say, I would not say the far, I would just say the right, you know that is very triggered by the victimhood culture <laughs> now can you tell me like what you think healthy activism looks like like can we talk about distinguishing real there are real victims right like i know you're talking about a victimhood culture but there are victims you know there are people who are raped there are on campuses that does exist to some degree there are people who are lots of things that would genuinely classify them as victims and they wouldn't and they're not motivated by the higher status they didn't ask for it. It's not like they asked for it, you know, like so that they could have higher status. How can we have a nuanced view of this where we kind of separate various things? I mean it gets really complex, doesn't it
2: yeah well one thing is that yeah, I mean there are always you know victims of various kinds, and the responses. Is- First of all, kind of you know, the sociological question of when do people have different responses, and then sort of the moral like well, what should our responses be that that's kind of that we're interested in. First of all, it's like when we talk about even honor, or and, and then victimhood would be the same thing. It's a matter of degree, the extent to which it becomes a kind of status. So you know, at the extreme, you know, like what people call honor cultures is it isn't because in those cultures people value bravery and we don't right it's not like in modern society we think oh yeah it's really great to be a coward that view might be more common than it is in an honor culture but bravery is still a virtue in other cultures in the cultures that people call honor cultures bravery has um as a virtue has come to kind of overshadow other virtues so, for example, like there would be the worst thing that you could do to be considered a coward. So then you have to take these great measures to show that you're not. And uh, you know, and so kindness and other kinds of things might, might be compromised on as long, mm-hmm. at least, least, at least I show I have honor, right? Right. And and it's the same like victimhood as a kind of status isn't something that is peculiar necessarily to victimhood cultures either. I mean, we do see extremes like. In honor culture, certainly in some kinds of honor cultures, you know, victimhood may be stigmatized, right? So even like a a rape victim, you can see variations of this might might be looked down upon for having been a victim. But it's kind of more common for victims to be accorded at least a kind of status just in the sense that people want to help them out, right? If you see somebody as a genuine victim, you want to take their side in a conflict against their oppressors, Mm -hmm. you know, so that itself is a kind of status. And again, what we so we would call a victimhood culture is where that kind of status has kind of overshadowed others. Where being a victim suddenly you know might mean then that you can't be criticized or or you know that or being considered a victim means that um you know you have uh you so know, rights different speech rights than others or whatever, right? So are there victims? There are. In in terms of how we might go about about it, I mean, I think I mean, there have been certainly social movements in the past that were concerned with oppression and victim and, and helping victims that weren't using the logic of, of what we're calling victimhood culture here. The civil rights movement in the United States was, you know, drawn from dignity culture. I mean, the idea was that, and certainly Martin Luther King and, and that kind of element of it, the idea was that we all have dignity here. And blacks aren't being treated as if they have dignity, right? So it was, it wasn't appealing to sort of a new set of values so much as saying that the values that are not being consistently applied. And, and so that meant, for example, you know, you know, so it took, you know, the form of, of trying to, you know, not denigrate whites and trying to bring about more peace and and reconciliation and peaceful uh, protest. And there were a lot of elements of that, but it was very much uh, drawing from from dignity culture, and again, like it's not as if there's some moment in the past where oh, this was dignity culture and this was good. We're talking in a kind of about moral ideals that are out there, right? And so there's to some extent realized, but not completely. And there are lots of variations in honor cultures and dignity cultures. But what we see with some of the campus movements is people really appealing to a different set of values. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you're right too about the anti-PC reaction on the right, or, um, you know, some, uh, some elements of the, of the right. This is something we, we talk about a little in the yeah, book.
0: you do, you talk um, about conservatives, yeah, yeah.
2: And we would have talked about it more probably, you know, if we were writing it like right now. Sure. Um, right. we, start, we started this stuff earlier, but I mean, so the, the, the first article was published in, in 2014, and I think like some of that reaction as with Trump and the rise of the alt-right, or the prominence of the alt-right anyway, is more um, more visible now, at least. So um, there is, yeah, so when we think of reactions to victimhood culture from, you know, the right, but could be from other elements too, there are, there's, first of all, there is kind of the clash between dignity culture and victimhood culture that we talk about. Yeah. And so that's, you know, the main clash but then there are reactions to victimhood culture that are also departing from dignity culture in their own ways and there are two of those really one is simply to embrace a kind of victimhood yourself they can overlap too but one is to embrace a kind of victimhood yourself to say no we are the real victims here and is a kind of a kind of conservative victimhood and then another is to reject I mean, to sort of um just kind of to to almost be offensive, embrace offensiveness. So if the the PC crowd or the the campus activists are sensitive about things and things you say, we'll just go ahead and say people talk about triggering the liberals and and that kind of stuff, like deliberately. And I think that's something, I mean, certainly the alt-right is not a movement that is drawing from dignity culture. It's another kind of reaction where you're seeing, you know, it's not about the dignity of all human beings. It's about, you know, whites or men or something. And I think like, you know, you said it's not just like the far right, but just kind of the right. And I I think that's true to some extent. In the last election, you saw some of that reaction to PC culture. So you would have even during the Republican primaries, Donald Trump would say something offensive or somebody would bring up something offensive that he had said in the past. And his response would be, oh, there's too much political correctness out there. Yeah. And it seemed to get a kind of traction where people would then sort of ignore the, the statement. And it's almost, you'll sometimes see defenders of some of the, the campus victimhood culture. Um, I tend to not use the term political correctness because it gets confusing about what it is. But you'll see people saying, "Well, a political correctness is just people being polite, right?" And and, well, you know, we've seen on campus it's not just that, but it's almost as if uh, in this reaction, it's almost like, "Well, anything you say is offensive." Can now be called, "Oh, if you're you're just being too sensitive and politically correct." If somebody argues with it, so you get this kind of I don't know if it's it's a kind of polarization on each side where you know it was previously bad to be offensive, and also but also, you know, considered, um, you know, not considered too dignified to take offense constantly at very small things or unintentional things. And then you get on one side now this uh, obsession with unintentional, even unintentional slights, harming people, speech, some kinds of speech is violence. And then on the other side, at least some elements of it, you get this idea well, we can say whatever we want it's and be offensive as possible. And you're just being too sensitive if you object. so those kinds of re- I mean I find them thinking morally about it. I find both of those um, reactions to victimhood culture that also depart from dignity culture as a problem, either to embrace a new kind of victimhood or to embrace offensiveness to itself or to combine that in some way, which I think you also see. And I think like it's not helpful, and neither side is you know, is going to you know, by pursuing that kind of strategy of re- of rejecting dignity is going to bring about more peaceful social relations, which is, I think what, what you know, um, you were yeah. talking
0: about. And I don't, but I don't think that's their goal. No, so, you know, I think about this from a psychological perspective, and it just like screams at me, like, what's going on? Like, you know, there is a fundamental need for self-esteem that humans have. We have lots of other needs, right? But that's one need. And it just seems like people are in their different echo chambers, and there are differences in terms of what, actions will give them the most status within their own echo chambers. Now the anti-PC culture, you get a lot of status if you go on Twitter and you make fun of a liberal or you or you fight a liberal or you fight well not a not any liberal, but the particular, you know, the victimhood the, the liberal that you're talking about. And then the other side, right, that you get their own stat, you know, um the, the kind of stats you're talking about from being for saying like, you know, I was hurt in some way. I I'm I'm a victim. But it just seems like aren't humans capable of more than Either of those options, like, aren't humans capable of like not being so concerned with their own self-esteem? And the thing is, you know, the people, those who I-, I personally find that those who are the most thoughtful about these conversations are those who are not on Twitter.
2: It depends on where you're at, too. So, I mean, if when you're, you know, we write mostly about college campuses, and there it's the it's the vict- Well, that's kind of changed a little too. But it's certainly the victimhood culture. That it's not that it's dominant, but it's what university administrators will give into, right? It's not. Oh, I um, see, yeah, not, yeah. You know, they're not giving in to, uh, and following the complaints of the conservative crowd. I mean, they're not uh, the, the Milo Yiannopoulos and stuff. Right. I mean, sometimes, you know, they protect free speech rights, but they're implementing the agenda of the activist in a lot of ways yeah. microaggression training programs. Being able to list, you know, microaggressions on student evaluations, investigating professors over it. I mean, that's kind of just. Um, well, right, Jonathan Haidt
0: would say they're enabling psychopathology.
2: Right, yeah. and, and that's that's an issue too. Is like, are they help even helping the people that you're purporting right. to help? Right. That's another issue. You know, Lukianoff and Haidt argued that they're not; that they're mm-hmm. creating depression and anxiety and these kinds of things. So, you know, there's a good argument that it's actually not even helping the students that you're supposed to be helping it's based on no kind of actual evidence like that microaggressions are causing these problems you know that mm-hmm. um, it's almost amazing you've seen this with implicit bias too like with other kinds of, of things that there's very little there's no no kind of evidence for but are being implemented on campuses uh in training programs and other other kinds of things and that's um and so that's a problem it's not and that's because campuses are, you know, people are on the left, liberals or, or, or leftists. So I think like, you know, from the standpoint of campuses, you know, I think what would people always say is, well, what about the right in the broader culture? And especially now with Trump as president and stuff, and that's all true. But that's not what's, I mean, those people aren't dominant on, on, uh, dominant on the campuses and, and aren't the ones um, who are threatening free speech on campus and who are, are, are um Really, kind of undermining the the purpose of the university. I do think that I mean it's true that some of the like the conservative clubs and stuff who bring in somebody they were bringing in Milo mm-hmm. Yiannopoulos. I don't guess he's not uh, there anymore, but especially him. But uh, you know, but but kind of bringing in people who are deliberately to be offensive. But but again, that's I, I I would prefer they didn't do that. But those are groups of people who are are powerless on campus and constantly denigrated. And it's unfortunate that you're, you're seeing that kind of polarization because what's got getting lost is really the, um, the ideals of dignity that we, we mm-hmm. talked about, right. That uh, to actually kind of, you know, instead of just, uh, just responding to, um, you know, the victim culture with more victimhood or, yeah. uh, or with offensiveness to try to, um, you know, to embrace these ideals of, of our common humanity and, Giving each other the benefit of the doubt, you can always take offense at at people's words and and things, and everybody kind of can experience slights and stuff and that's why we kind of know to to get along with others. One thing we do is we drop a lot of things and we do you know you don't pay attention to it, so it's a recipe really i mean it's a recipe for just kind of constant conflict to encourage people to look for offenses and that's yeah. what's happening you know on both sides to some extent
0: yeah, Maslow said something like. Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, is something like, when all you have is a hammer, all you everything looks like a nail or something like that. So you know, if we're only you know, looking through the lens of victimhood, then we do miss out on goodness in others, right? Now, this dignity culture, the word dignity, why not call it like love culture? Like when you describe dignity culture, me, I was like, that sounds good. I'm down with, I think we need more of this kind of dignity culture in our society. And, you know, I joined the uh, Heterodox Academy that Jonathan Haidt runs, and I don't know if you've heard of it and their mission, but something that you might actually be interested in joining. But I joined it because, you know, there are a lot of very thoughtful individuals who are making very valid, rational arguments why campus speech is being, you know, there there are real issues that you point out in your book, and there are real issues that people in the Heterodox Academy point out that I agree with, you know, that we can't be hypocritical. We need, if, if we want to have a dignity culture, we need to have a dignity culture for everyone. So that is a good point. And conservatives make that point, and I agree with their point when they make that. But it does seem like there's value in separating, you know, like, I keep going back to this, but like healthy activism versus psychopathological activism. But kind of activism that is, you know, motivation seemed to, to be really important here. I study a trait called vulnerable narcissism. And I've been publishing papers on vulnerable narcissism. It's a form of narcissism where you feel entitled to attention from others because of some vulnerability that you have. But it is correlated, you know, we have this paper coming out soon on the psychopathology of of vulnerable narcissism. And it is correlated with lots of, you know, reduced well-being in life, greater depression, greater anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not good for, for those individuals that score high on that. And usually that trait develops as a result of real childhood trauma. You know, it's something that does develop as a, a rational response to protection, you know, for defenses, defenses, defense mechanisms. But bringing that into the equation, it seems like there is importance in contrasting vulnerable narcissism characteristics from genuine compassion, genuine people who are motivated. There are activists who are motivated for growth oriented reasons. They want to make the world a better place, not only their group or their own people like them. So do you agree with that distinction?
2: Yeah, I I think, um, I think um, it's important to distinguish healthy activism from these other kinds. And that makes a lot of sense about vulnerable narcissism and stuff. I I do think, well, something you said, too, is, I think, is relevant, like, talking about, like, you know, the idea that when you have a hammer, um, all you see is nails. Yeah, and so yeah. this is part of the problem. Is that there's a victimhood culture, is a kind of morality that looks at things almost solely in terms of oppression and victimhood, and so that's why it's come, and it's
0: come power, like, power, it.
2: and that's something that exists, right? But it's not all that exists, and it's not the whole of morality. And I think yeah. we, we've talked about something, you know, just, I mean, that's not that necessarily that good of a term for it, but we think we're thinking of it as moral emaciation, where um, you end up um, kind of losing. So, you know, there might be all kind of other virtues and, and vices, right, for your, your thing. And you come to define everything in terms of oppression and victimhood. I think some of the activists have almost lost any kind of moral language that doesn't involve that. So for them, you know, when when you say, you know, when you try to bring up these other issues, it kind of makes no sense if you're like, well, no, but aren't these the good people and these the bad people or these are the victims and oppressors or, you know, even free speech and stuff. And you even see it. I think you see it with other other things, too. Like, you know, if if something is um, if something on campus is, you know, I, I'm just thinking like one of the uproars was over. I don't think I remember which college this was at, but there was a, a statue of like a man in his underwear. Mm. And this was, uh, and they ended up, you know, protesting it and taking it down because uh, they were, people were, were saying they were triggered. It looked, you know, it uh, looked like a rapist. Would mm. seemed to a lot of outsiders as a kind of silly response. But when I was thinking, when I was watching it, well, I, the statue was like really tacky. I wouldn't want it on my campus either, you know, <laughs> but I, um, I could imagine seeing like, you know, we have the statue of a man in his underwear. I mean, it's but they couldn't just say that. Right. Like, uh, no, get this crap out of here. It had to be if, if it's something we don't like, it must be oppression. Right. And mm. and I think like some of the stuff in the Me Too movement, who I think I mean, I am in general for it. I mean, something like Harvey Weinstein is somebody who's actually like
0: universally agreed as an asshole.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. So And doing like, you know, groping and raping and these kinds of things. And I, and there's a lot of that kind of behavior that, you know, for a long time men have gotten away with it and so on for that. But then it does seem like that with some some of the behavior, you know, there's a big variation in what people have objected to. But you see things like that. Uh, you know, there was um, Aziz Ansari who got uh, mm-hmm. I saw this that. article about him, but, you know, and with a woman complaining that, you know, she had been on a date with him. She went back to his apartment. And. He was, you know, pursuing sex with her, and you know, them not having There were sex. I mean, if you read the thing, you could see. Well, well, okay, I can see why she doesn't like him, right? Mm. Or like he was, he had this gender. He, uh, I mean, I think like the older moral language would be to call him like, you know, a cat or something. You know, like somebody, but who, who, uh, even to disapprove of his behavior and saying, well, I don't want to go out, of, you know, get out of here. I don't want to go out on a date with you. You're, you're a lecture, or whatever. But it was, of course, again, he was a. You know, sexually assaulted is the yeah. idea that I think was used, in. and uh, so it's again kind of looked at it as a kind of oppression. So I think some of that is like losing the moral language to disapprove of something yeah. if it's not an act of oppression, and that's you know, an oppression is is like a severe offense, so that's um, mm. you know, that that's a problem too. Um, I think with the activists, it's not that they're insincere, some I mean, obviously, if, if somebody is lying about something that occurred like uh, you know in the hate crime hoaxes those people are insincere in, in, in trying to claim status, but most of these people are perfectly sincere. this is the way they think the world works that um that this is you know they think that people are being constantly oppressed through microaggressions and and uh and these other kinds of things and and they're perfectly sincere about it and I think like and there may be um and once these terms catch on, I can see other people adopting them and maybe not trying to you know, be as extreme about them or something. But the ideas themselves are a problem, I think. Like if, you know, and uh, so I think like a healthy activism has to reject this kind of victimhood ideology to some extent too, or it's going to create those the kinds of problems with depression and conflict and anxiety and those kinds of things. Also, um, I, I am a member of Heterodox Academy also. Okay. And, and that's an organization that is, um, you know, good influence on, on campuses to the extent that it, it's—I mean, I don't—it has any effect. I think, in particular, Jonathan Haidt, who's kind of instrumental in starting it, has been talking about the, this this uh, since two thousand fifteen as as well with um, the "Coddling of the American Mind" article and and, yeah. the, and so I think uh, their work is important too. Lukianov and Haidt. they have a book coming out. Yes, um,
0: and they'll be on my podcast as well, Jonathan will okay. be.
2: And I think they, they approach some from from a different angle. And I, I think their, their book is broader than the, the campus stuff. But the approach is kind of the, you know, what are the psychological effects of this and, and looking at how it leads to depression, I think. Sociologically, though, we would see it like going back to like moral conflict, that if you're thinking about what kinds of environments are conducive to peace and, you know, peaceful relations and uh, not, not just lack of violence, but actual harmony, and what kinds are not. That sensitivity to slight, they, the same kind you see in honor cultures or something, this high sensitivity and, and complaints to third parties for minor offenses is not something, you know, that can, can ever lead to harmony, right? You, there's no stopping it, right? I mean, I've had a lot of people say, well, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and they'll say, well, why isn't this a problem? And they'll give examples that I understand, you know, they'll talk about, well, you know, things that might be considered micro, And again, just because some of these things happen and are offensive doesn't mean that the concept of microaggression is a good one, right? Like, it doesn't mean I I, I would defend everything somebody says that, you know, if somebody if slights someone's ethnicity or, or these kinds of things. I mean, some of the examples that are given of microaggression seem to be very, I mean, like the, the idea that asking someone where they're where from mm-hmm. is microaggression, you know, it, it's sort of normal conversation. Mm-hmm. But if somebody does say, well, I'm from North Dakota and you say, no, where are you really from? Because the person is Asian or something. I mean, that still may be, it depends on who you're talking to, I think. I that's I wonder too, like, oh, all these things, is this your is this your boss or is this like the cashier or something, right? Like it's uh, you know, there 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 needs to be a certain level of generosity, but some of those things are are certainly offensive. That doesn't mean it's a microaggression in the sense that is used. It doesn't mean microaggression is a good concept. It doesn't mean that it actually has to harm you to have hurt it but it's perfectly fine if you just want to say yeah it would be nice to teach people uh you know to avoid certain things that commonly offend people right like uh you know if you know that you know minorities take offense when you think of them as somebody who doesn't belong here right because you're saying no where are you really from or, or something that will make sense but to to do it you know rather than just simply talking about what people should say or how they can talk about better but actually stigmatizing it and calling it a kind of violence and aggression and, encur- and encouraging then people to notice it and take offense at it and not to let it go when it occurs, that's something that seems to be a, a recipe for never-ending conflict. It's not like you would ever get to a point where the microaggressions would stop, right? Because anything can be interpreted as a microaggression if you're encouraging people to do that. So um, there's no way it could ever have any success if success is meant to like, Produce like racial harmony or something. It can only lead to either a cont- a constant conflict or a situation where people stop interacting because there's too much offense. You know, too much taking offense, and people are afraid. And I think it goes. I think you mentioned earlier. You know, it may not be their goal to have harmony. Certainly not the extreme activists seem to, to thrive on the conflict.
0: Yeah. Do you think there should be more forgiveness in the world uh, for our common imperfections as being human?
2: Yeah. I think there should be more forgiveness in the world in general. But that's what I, think, I'm saying. Yeah. I don't even think it, forgiveness is is something that it, it can be extremely difficult if it's a severe offenses. I don't even see how forgiveness is even hard when you're talking about unintentional words, right? I mean, I think like people constantly say things. I mean, they, um, I mean, I wonder sometimes like how much interaction people have. being with, with there are always people saying like things that are are uh, you know tacky or inappropriate or rude. I mean, you could go example after anybody could pile examples of this. And usually we let it go because we know that we are, we are, for one thing, we we say things that are, you know, we, we don't always say the right thing. For another thing, I think this is interesting too, is that if you're quick to take offense because somebody has said something that is uh, socially inappropriate, you're really making it difficult for people who, um, you know, any kind of neurodiversity—people who don't pick up on social cues—as well, right? Or, or people from different cultures—you know—who also might not pick up on all the cues and know exactly what's offensive. So, you have you have people, you know, coming in uh, from other—you know—so if you have diversity, you're going to have a lot of like awkwardness in uh, in conversations and stuff. And without without a kind of like uh, charity <laughs> or, or forgiveness, where you're where where you're letting most things go and trying to be understanding of what people are trying to say what you know um rather than taking offense without without that you're not going to have have you know any kind of harmony
0: bradley thank you so much for chatting with me today you raised a lot of really thought-provoking and important points and thanks for the work you're doing
2: thank you for having me it was a good conversation
0: thanks for listening to the psychology podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast. And tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
2: okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Ravi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.